0: to do something outside, and I believe maybe for the first time in 2018, it's not going to rain, and that's amazing. So I'm happy. I don't know about you. Should be a good time after we get uh, done with our service this morning. Uh, My name's Jamie. If you're new or we haven't met, um, I am a a pastor predominantly uh, overseeing most of the preaching around here. Uh, which is a good segue into where we're going this morning. Uh, Last week, if you weren't around, we began a sermon series uh, through the book of Acts that's going to carry us ultimately through the fall and the spring with a little break in the middle for an Advent series in December and a brief four-week vision casting series in January. But for the greater part of the fall and the spring, we're going to work our way through the book of Acts, the grassroots movement of the early church. We, we entitled this series Witnesses, and the reason we did so is because Witnesses really has a twofold meaning that carries its way through the book of Acts. It's a meaning that we see uh, from from cover to cover as we work our way through this book of the Bible you'll see it over and over again that uh, we see many not only witness witnesses of God's goodness glory and grace with their very own eyes but also people bearing witness to God's goodness glory and grace in the advancement of the gospel that I said it this way last week God has always been pleased to display his glory to his people and through his people and we see that twofold witnessing work of God most surely in the book of Acts last week. We talked about the fact that the book of Acts is really the sequel to the book of Luke. Or maybe the book of Luke is the prequel to the book of Acts. I'm not sure how you think about film, but you get what I'm saying here. The book of Luke deals with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The book of Acts tells the story of what Jesus continued to do and teach after his ascension. That Another way we could say it, in the book of Luke, we read about what Jesus taught and did on earth. In the book of Acts, we read about what Jesus taught and did from heaven. That the book of Acts really could be entitled, The Acts of Jesus Christ Through the Apostles and the Church by the Power of the Holy Spirit. It tells the story of a bunch of ordinary people like you and me, empowered by the extraordinary Spirit of God turning the world upside down for the glory of Jesus Christ. As we closed out chapter one last week, we left the disciples in the city of Jerusalem devoting themselves to prayer as they awaited an outpouring of the promised Holy Spirit, the coming together of this new community purchased by Jesus' very own blood. This morning... Uh, We're going to dive into a very famous passage of scripture, very brief passage, but a passage that represents one of the most significant moments really in all of redemptive history. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 2. We'll be in the first 13 verses of that chapter this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible or the translation that you brought with you is difficult to track with, please take that Bible as the church's gift to you. Let me go ahead and pray for us and, and we'll dive in and get going this morning. What a perfect opportunity, Holy Spirit, to declare our deep need for you in a passage that honors you, that shows your unique role in the advancement of the gospel and the building of the church of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would be honored this morning. I pray that you would continue to do what we're gonna see you doing in Acts chapter two, which is move in power. Move in power in our midst this very morning. We desperately need you. The same spirit of Acts chapter two is the same spirit alive and well today in the church. And so we desperately need you, Holy Spirit, to move, to work, to work, to help us to see that which you would have us to see, to help us hear that which you would have us to hear, to help us to receive with our hearts that which you would have us to receive. Would you, would you move? Would you work in power? If there are any who are in this place this morning who come in uncertain about Jesus, Holy Spirit, would you bring the gospel to life for them? And for those of us who come in professing to know and love and follow Jesus already, would you awaken our slumbering hearts yet again? We need you. We desperately need you. Would you move in power in these moments to come as we spend time in your word? It's in the name of Jesus. I pray, Amen. So this morning, my goal is simply to attempt to answer four questions, and I'm going to go ahead and give you those four questions now as kind of a road map for where we're going to go this morning. So here they are up on the screen. Question one: What can we say about the Holy Spirit? Question number two, what happened on the day of Pentecost? Question three, what is Luke seeking to communicate here in these 13 verses? And then question four, what are the implications for the church today? If we can leave this place having to some extent Okay, let me qualify it. To some extent, having answered those four questions, we'll be in pretty good shape as we journey on through the book of Acts. And so let's dive into the first of those four questions. What can we say about the Holy Spirit? And the answer is way more than we have time to unpack this morning, right? There are entire volumes of systematic theology devoted to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Will you leave this place with unanswered questions? Absolutely. Yes and amen. But Just because we can't say everything doesn't mean that we shouldn't say something. As we consider the day of Pentecost here in Acts chapter 2, this is an incredible opportunity to honor the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit oftentimes gets treated, you've heard me say this before, as the redheaded stepchild of the Trinity. And that should not be so. That the Holy Spirit is fully God, equal in dignity, power, and worth with God the Father and God the Son. That in Acts chapter 5, we'll get there a few weeks from now, Peter accuses Ananias of lying to the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to ask Ananias the following question. He asked, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So there, Peter attributes the Holy Spirit to deity. David asks in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence, Lord? That he attributes omnipresence to the Holy Spirit, an attribute that only God possesses. The apostle Paul attributes omniscience, this being all-knowing and all-knowingness to the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. Paul says, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. According to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the eternal spirit, having no beginning or end. That's an attribute uh, attributed to God alone. Only God possesses the attribute of eternality, that the Holy Spirit is fully God. In addition, the Holy Spirit is not some impersonal force, but rather a person, a person who can be grieved, a person who can be resisted, a person who can be insulted. And thus, the Holy Spirit is a he, not an it As Jesus declares in John chapters 14 and 16. The Holy Spirit has been around since before creation. And in fact was involved in creation. Active in creation. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. The Holy Spirit hovered over the face of the waters in the creation story. It's the Holy Spirit who conceived Jesus in the womb of Mary, Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1. It was the Holy Spirit who anointed and empowered Jesus at his baptism for the work of ministry, Matthew chapter 3 verse 16. It was by the Holy Spirit that Jesus cast out demons among a vast number of miracles, Matthew chapter 12 verse 28. It was the Holy Spirit who was poured out on many on the day of Pentecost, as we'll get to momentarily, Acts chapter 2, verse 4. That when you read the latter parts of Acts chapter 2, you see the church in action and you think to yourself, what a beautiful display of what the church can and should be. That is the direct result of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who makes us alive in Christ, John chapter 3. It's the Spirit who bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, giving us assurance, Romans chapter 8, verse 16. It's the Spirit who sanctifies us, bringing forth the character of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, as well as Galatians 5. It's the Spirit who intercedes for us in prayer, Romans 8. It's the spirit who guides and directs God's people. We see him guiding and directing Jesus into the wilderness in Matthew chapter four. We see him guiding and directing Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter eight. We'll get there soon enough. It's the spirit who teaches us, John 14, and guides us in all truth, John 16. It's the spirit who empowers us for service. Acts chapter one, verse eight, going back to last week's passage. Also, 1 Corinthians 12. It's the Spirit who unifies believers, 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. It's the Spirit who guarantees our future fellowship with God, 2 Corinthians 1, 22. It's through the Spirit that you and I will experience the resurrection of our mortal bodies, Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Even the, even the very Bible that you hold right now in your hand, physical or digital, is referred to as what? The sword of the... Spirit, Ephesians chapter six, verse 17. In fact, the reason that you and I have a Bible in the first place is because 2 Peter 1.21, men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That when we talk about the coming of the Spirit in Acts chapter two, that's who we're talking about. Praise, praise the Father, praise the Son and praise the Spirit three in one. Oh, praise him. Hallelujah, right? There's there's so much more that could be said about the Holy Spirit. Oh my goodness, we could do an entire year long, if not more, sermon series just on the doctrine of the Spirit of God. Unfortunately, this is not a a topical sermon on the third person of the Godhead. This is an expository sermon on the first part of Acts chapter 2. And so onward, we must march. Question number two, what happened on the day of Pentecost? What actually took place here in Acts chapter 2? Luke really devotes the entirety of this chapter to answering that question. And so we're, we're actually going to get after the answer to that question in its fullness over the course of the next several weeks. But as it pertains to this morning's passage, we're told in verse 1 that when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Going back to chapter 1, verse 15, we're talking about roughly 120 of Jesus' followers. And they're, they're all together together. On the day of Pentecost, one of the three major feasts on the Jewish calendar, given the name Pentecost because of its establishment on the 50th day after Passover. All right, five, Penta, Pentagon, tracking with me. Pentecost was a feast celebrating the wheat harvest. It was also known as the day of the first fruits because it was on that day that the first fruits of the wheat harvest were actually presented to God, which is pretty incredible when you read ahead in Acts chapter two toward the end of the chapter and you see a harvesting of souls that happens on this day. That you see God sowing the first fruits of the New Testament church. That's God's timing. It's quite unbelievable. Also, Significant is that by the the early first century, Pentecost was considered to be the, the anniversary of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, going back to Moses' day. What better way to contrast the giving of the law than with the giving of the Spirit? All that to say that that this is no accident what God is up to here in Acts chapter 2. That Jesus' followers have been waiting for the promised Holy Spirit that he said would come. The Spirit who would empower them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Going back to Acts chapter 1 verse 8. What better a way to accomplish the worldwide mission of God in expanding the church than with an outpouring of the Spirit on a day when the known world had come together in one place? God knows what he's doing, whether you believe that to be true in any given moment or not. And his timing really is perfect. Moving on to verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That going back to chapter one, Jesus gives his disciples the plan, you will be my witnesses. And here in chapter two now, Jesus gives them the power that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. That just as the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism for the the work of ministry that we see in the gospel accounts, here the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus' followers so that they can continue the ministry of Jesus. We're told, like a mighty rushing wind, tongues as of fire... Remember, remember when you learned about similes and metaphors in grade school? Some of you are like, no, nah, that was way too long ago. I think I remember those words. I don't know what they mean. The words like and as and trying to connect the dots in human language. This is Luke's attempt at explaining the supernatural within the constraints of human language. That the Holy Spirit is likened to a strong wind. Which is not surprising because both the Greek word "rua" and the or excuse me, the Hebrew word ruah and the Greek word pneuma can be translated as spirit, wind, or breath. That it was the spirit who hovered over the face of the waters in the story of creation, we're told. That in one of the most dramatic prophecies in the entire Old Testament, the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel chapter 37, God says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. That That the sound of wind is a reminder of creation. The declaration that a new creation is beginning, is happening. The breath of God, incredible life, incredible power. That in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God consecrated the temple of God. Here in Acts chapter two, the Spirit of God is consecrating a new temple. If you're the church, that's you. That God's new covenant people are being consecrated. We've been bought by the precious blood of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is is also likened to fire, which is also not surprising. God's presence is associated with fire throughout the scriptures, right? The burning bush episode with Moses, the pillar of fire by night that led the Israelites through the wilderness, the consuming fire on Mount Sinai, that it's ultimately a declaration of God's presence and power in and with his new covenant people. Trevor Lawrence, writer for the Gospel Coalition Found this helpful in reading this article. He says, Wind and fire, cloud and flame, the glory presence that went before and behind in the Exodus, that rested over the tabernacle, that filled the temple, now rests over and fills up God's new dwelling, his people, sin stained though they are. Isn't that good news? He goes on to say, the storm of God's presence rushes but does not destroy. The fire of God's presence descends but does not consume. How can this be? And he goes on to answer his own question because Jesus was destroyed and consumed by God's holy presence at the cross so that God could be present with, take up residence in, his temple people in grace. It's unbelievable a remarkable moment in the overarching story of redemptive history. Churches filled with the Holy Spirit in a way never before experienced. We're told, moving on in verse 5, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered, you think? Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia... Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, that here we get the reaction of this predominantly Jewish crowd. Jesus' spirit-filled disciples are telling of the mighty works of God, the works of God in redemptive history in the midst of a crowd that that pretty well makes up most of the first century Greco-Roman world as it was known, and particularly areas that have some sort of Jewish presence. As scattered Jews and Gentile proselytes come together in Jerusalem from far and wide for the celebration of Pentecost, You have this perfect opportunity for the gospel to go forth throughout the known world. It's an amazing scene. Jesus' disciples, who are not fluent in the various languages represented by this crowd of people, they begin telling the mighty works of God in the languages and dialects of the crowd. That Whatever you make of the tongues in Corinth, which, by the way, if you have questions about the gifts of the Spirit speaking in tongues, I would encourage you, commend you to go back. We did a series entitled Beautiful Mess, where we walked through the book of 1 Corinthians a few years ago. Go back and listen to the sermons having to do with chapters 12 through 14 of that series, and I think you'll be served well in working through some of those questions that you might have. But whatever you make of the tongues in Corinth, there's no doubt that what's described here in Acts chapter 2 is the ability to speak in a foreign language. You have a bunch of Galileans who did not take French and Spanish in high school, and all of a sudden they're bilingual, maybe even multilingual in this moment. No wonder the crowd is bewildered, amazed, astonished, to use the language of verses five through 11. And we're told in verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine that... Some respond with a a healthy sort of curiosity. What do we do with this? What does it mean? What are the implications of what's happening in this moment? And others mockingly accuse the disciples of being drunk. I don't know about you, I've I've seen alcohol impede someone's ability to speak their own language well. I've never seen alcohol actually give someone the ability to speak other people's native languages. That's a new one on me. I don't know what happened. One moment, Tommy's over in the corner taking shots. Next, next thing you know, he's speaking Mandarin Chinese. I guess that's like a new way to equip missionaries. <laughs> no, according to the Apostle Paul, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, not the loss of it. It's not what's happening here. This is what happens when you run out of natural explanations. You have to resort to irrational ex- explanations in order to suppress what you believe to be irrational yourself. Namely, the supernatural works of God. It's a really helpful reminder that miracles in and of themselves do not convert. And it's also a good reminder that being devout, going back to verse 5, doesn't mean that you belong to Jesus. These are devout men of God coming together. These are people who are engaging in the spiritual disciplines, checking all the right boxes, attending the temple and so forth and so on. Devout men coming together who are missing it. Some are amazed, some perplexed, some mock. Reminds me of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 14. Where he says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. That some receive the truth in joy. Others, Romans 1, by their unrighteousness suppress that very same truth. We see both responses here in Acts chapter 2. Coming back to the question, what what happened on the day of Pentecost? Well, this morning's passage gives us part of the answer to that question. Again, Luke devotes the entirety to chapter 2 to seeking to answer that question. And so more to come in the next week. But as it pertains to this morning's passage, let let me just move on to question 3. What is Luke seeking to communicate here? What is Luke trying to tell us? Well, for one... I think it's clear that this is Luke's declaration of the inauguration of a new era of the Spirit, that something is happening here that is significant in redemptive history. We're talking about a, a very, very brief passage of Scripture, and yet one of the greatest moments. In fact, uh, most scholars and commentators lump the day of Pentecost in with creation, creation, The coming of Jesus in the story of the incarnation, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. This is a big moment in redemptive history, what God is doing here. It's also a declaration that the gospel is to be spread throughout the world. Jesus himself said as much in the final chapter of the prequel, Luke chapter 24, verse 45. Then he opened their minds, Jesus did, to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That unlike Paul's unpacking of the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12-14, through or Paul's unpacking of what it means to walk by the Spirit in Galatians 5, what we have here is the empowerment of the Spirit for the bold proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that the good news of Jesus might be spread to the far reaches of the earth, beginning in Jerusalem. I'll quote a couple of different Johns for you to make sense of that. John Piper first he says, the speaking in tongues in Acts has a very definite role to play. It's directly connected to the presence of people from all the nations who need to understand the great things the disciples were saying. In other words, the miracle of tongues was a demonstration of God's sovereign power, and it showed that this power promised in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, really was intended to advance the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. It was a token that God means for all people to understand His greatness and that he is willing to do miracles to make his glory known among the nations." John number two, Stott, says this: "Discussion about the nature of speaking in tongues must not distract our attention from Luke's understanding of its significance on the day of Pentecost. It symbolized a new unity in the spirit, transcending racial, national and linguistic barriers. Ever since the early church fathers, commentators have seen the blessing of Pentecost as a deliberate and dramatic reversal of the curse of Babel. At Babel, human languages were confused and the nations were scattered. In Jerusalem, the language barrier was supernaturally overcome as a sign that the nations would now be gathered together in Christ, prefiguring the great day when the redeemed company will be drawn from every nation, tribe, people, and language. That... Going back to last week, Jesus' final words before ascending to heaven are the promise that empowered by the Spirit of God, you are going to point people to the crucified and risen Son of God. And starting with Jerusalem, I'm going to build my church to the ends of the earth and the gates of hell are hopeless to stop it. So that the picture we see in the book of Revelation is this, Revelation 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, Jesus, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That. Pentecost is a powerful demonstration of God's pursuit of worshipers from across the globe. And it's a foreshadowing of what's to come when Jesus returns to unite this diverse multitude around his throne in worship for eternity. Revelation Chapter seven, verse nine says it this way. After this, John says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and the, before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. I've said this before. It is a global, diverse citizenship that will comprise the new Jerusalem. I don't know about you, that sounds like a lot of fun to me. That's going to be a fun cultural melting pot to be a part of where we get to sit down with people from all over the globe and ask them about the saving work of Jesus Christ in their lives by the power of the Spirit. Story after story after story of God crossing lines and boundaries and thresholds to save because he's mighty to do it. Which brings me to the final question. What are the implications for us, for the church today? I think a couple things come to mind. One simple answer to that question is that you and I desperately need the Spirit of God, just the same as our brothers back in the grassroots movement of the early church. That, As John Stott puts it, to quote him again, he says, Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver. No understanding without the spirit of truth. No fellowship without the unity of the spirit. No Christ likeness of character apart from his fruit. And no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, Stott says, so the church without the spirit is dead. The church that seeks to operate in her own power, leaning on anything and everything other than Jesus at the center and the Spirit's empowerment to get it done, she's nothing more than a body without breath. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a part of a breathless body. I don't want to waste my life for that cause, which is one of the many reasons that we're part of the church planting network that we're actually a part of. The Acts 29 network. Part of the distinctives, if you go to the website of our church planting network, this is what you'll find. It says, the model for our reliance upon the spirit and our experience of his indwelling and empowering presence is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who was filled with the spirit and entirely dependent upon his power for the performance of miracles, the preaching of the kingdom of God and all other dimensions of his earthly ministry. That if Jesus himself was dependent upon the spirit, how in the world can we not be, right? We're desperate for the Spirit of God. We're deeply dependent upon the Spirit of God. The good news is that if you're a Christian, the same Spirit who empowered the Lord Jesus Christ himself indwells you. The same Spirit who descended at Pentecost indwells you. It's incredible. that You're not alone. The Holy Spirit has set up permanent residency within you. Don't take that for granted, church. May we be a Spirit-led, Spirit-filled, Spirit-dependent, Spirit-empowered people. But more specifically, the empowering of the Spirit, going back to something I said just a moment ago, in Acts chapter 2, was for the advancement of the gospel. That the book of Acts tells the story of the Spirit of God empowering the people of God to proclaim the Son of God. That the work of the Spirit in the book of Acts, if you go on to read it, and we will, it's not always accompanied by a mighty wind or tongues of fire. You don't see that manifestation of the Spirit every time people are filled with the Spirit. What you do see over and over and over and over and over again is a boldness to proclaim. And we desperately need that same boldness that only the Spirit of God can give us. To quote John Piper one last time, he says, Pentecost was the first of the great outpourings on the Christian church and until the task of world evangelization is completed, it is our duty to pray for fresh seasons of the extraordinary outpouring of God's Spirit to awaken and empower the church and to penetrate the final frontiers of world evangelization. That... You and I have a mission. We are Jesus's witnesses. And not just to people of certain backgrounds and backstories. You and I have a part to play in pointing people from all walks of life to the supremely valuable Son of God. And we desperately need the Spirit's empowering to do so. We need those those deepening uh, experiences of assurance and power that the Spirit provides. Apart from the Spirit, you will lack courage in your evangelism, and so will I. Apart from the Spirit, you will lack clarity in your evangelism, and so will I. That apart from the Spirit, you will lack power in your evangelism, and so will I. That in Acts chapter 2, the church is given the power to execute Jesus' plan, and the power is Jesus' Spirit, the same Spirit who's alive in you and me today. That God is calling every one of us to be His witnesses let me ask you, who is the Spirit prompting you to share the gospel with even now in this season of life? We're called to move toward those who desperately need Jesus Christ, just like the early church, declaring the desperate need that we have ourselves for the outpouring of the Spirit as we do so. And, and listen, let me, let me close with this. Let, let, me, let me be a firsthand witness to say that the Spirit of God is happy to do so. That this is not just an empowering that we see in the early church 2,000 years ago. I saw it with my own eyes yesterday. That for those of you who were here last week, I mentioned that I wasn't even sure how I'd get through the sermon because only hours prior, I'd been told that my grandfather was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer and given 30 to 60 days to live. And at the time, uh, we were pretty convinced, myself and a number of family members, that he uh, was not a Christian And so much of this week, I shared with several people who are in this room right now that I was terrified. I said, I'm I'm fearful, I'm terrified, I feel like a coward because I stand up in front of a room full of roughly 100 people week in and week out and boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet the thought of sitting down with a dying old man who I share a bloodline with to share the gospel terrifies me. Because if there's one person on planet Earth that I don't want to be rejected by, it's my grandpa who acted as a father figure to me growing up. If there's one person I don't want to get the gospel wrong with, It's my dying grandfather who has 30 to 60 days to live. If there's one person that I wanna somehow intermingle the joy of reminiscing and sharing stories with each other and somehow bring in the weightiness of eternity and and dance that dance, it's him in this moment. And I couldn't see how that could possibly come to fruition. And so most of last week was me sharing with a number of people how terrified, how much of a coward I actually am for two reasons. Number one, so that they could hold me accountable to it and ask me on the other side of it how it actually went. And number two, so that no one but God could get the glory for it. And let me tell you, yesterday, I sat with my dying grandfather and God moved by the power of his spirit. And and he moved because people prayed for the spirit of God to move in power before that time that I had with him. And because the spirit was moving and empowering in that moment, and it's not because I'm anything impressive. I'm not. I'm a mess. I told enough people before yesterday I was a mess so that they could hold me to it. So you can go ask people, was he a coward this week? Yeah, he was. Desperate for the Spirit of God to move. I'm reminded, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, But we have this treasure. What treasure is he talking about? If you go right before that verse, he's talking about the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the message of the gospel, the content of the gospel. He says, but we have this treasure, the gospel message, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I think we claw, we claw, we fight to try to communicate some semblance of strength and self-reliance. And we do so even in our evangelism at times, do we not? We're terrified to share the gospel with people because we're terrified we're going to mess it up and come across as less than impressive. What if they take me off script? I've memorized my four bullet points. I'm ready to go. What if they take me away from the four bullet points of evangelism? What am I going to do? You're going to point them to a perfect, impressive Jesus who doesn't mess up. Because he's the one on the throne. He's the Savior. Not you. Not me. We can mess up our evangelism. We're the only worldview on the planet who can. Jars of clay. If we will declare ourselves to be weak, feeble, easily breakable, but desperate for the empowerment of the Spirit of God, he will do quite amazing things. And and notice that in Acts chapter 2, we're not told that we get to manipulate the harvest. He doesn't say that we can go in and, in the Spirit's power, white knuckle people's responses in a certain way. I can say before you, by God's grace, that I got to hear from my grandfather's lips to my very own ears, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. So there was a seed of faith there that I'm going to continue to press on for weeks if God will give me that time with Him and continue to walk with Him in that. We don't. We don't get to manipulate the harvest, but my hope more than anything coming out of yesterday was that I could walk away declaring the greatness and glory of the spirit of God when we lean on him and trust him to empower so that he gets the glory and we get the joy to be a part of the whole thing, amen? And that's what we're gonna see as we continue to walk through the book of Acts, story after story, not one similar to the one before it, whether it be Peter, Peter, and the Ethiopian, or excuse me, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, a one-on-one like I had with my grandfather yesterday, or Paul walking into a, a city center, metropolitan area, seeing idolatry all over the place and speaking into that with boldness. Anything goes in the book of Acts. And the same is true today, right? Anything goes. You have no idea where God wants to use you. Your workplace, your neighborhood, among your friends and family members. Wherever you go, going, witness to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. And we will see the Spirit on display in beautiful ways as we continue through this series. In a moment, we're going to continue to worship in a few different ways through the receiving of communion. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. You're invited to come and take the bread, representing the broken body of Jesus, to dip it in the cup, representing his shed blood. He is the one we proclaim. Let's stop and and first and foremost, just marvel at the grace of God in rescuing us into this family that we're a continuing part of this story, not because of anything we've done, but because God is gracious and mighty to save and he has rescued us. Let's stop and soak in that before we come and take of the elements this morning. If you want people to pray with you, there'll be people in the back of the room happy to do so, whatever that might look like. If you come in this morning, you're not a Christian and you want someone to pray with and for you to receive this Jesus and the power of his indwelling spirit, people will be happy to pray for you in that regard. If you've got friends, family members, neighbors, coworkers, someone in front of you right now that you're going, I know they need Jesus and I'm terrified to share the gospel with them. Go ask someone to pray for the empowering work of the Spirit. I'll do it. I'm happy to pray for you because I've been the recipient of that in recent days and I marvel at what God is able to do when we will lean into him and ask for prayer. And then also let's let's worship through song as we always do. Let's sing to this glorious Jesus. Let's sing to this glorious Father. Let's sing to this glorious Spirit.